0: Welcome to the Church 214 Podcast. We're glad that you've joined us today. We hope that you enjoy today's message. And if you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at church214.org. Good morning, Church. Good morning, good morning. Hey, I don't know about you, but if those lyrics seem especially powerful and impactful to you, it's because they come straight from Scripture. Specifically, That song called The Blessing was written uh, not too long ago. And the lyrics in that song come from two primary parts of Scripture. The first is in Numbers 6.22. This is called um, The Priestly Blessing is, is, is generally what it's referred to. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron and his sons to bless the people of Israel with this special blessing. May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord smile and be gracious to you. May the Lord show you his favor and give you peace. That's also oftentimes referred to as the benediction. That's a word that we don't use too often in church culture anymore. If you're probably under 20, you maybe have never even heard that word. But when I was little, the benediction was always at the very bottom of the bulletin. See, we used to do this thing when you would go to church, they would hand you like a a pamphlet, like you get at a wedding, you know. And it would have the agenda for the service. And at the end of the agenda would say the benediction. And I used to get super excited about that because when you got to the benediction, I mean, church was over. And then that meant I got to go home, eat fried chicken from KFC. That was the thing back then. Eat my Nana's favorite or famous uh, macaroni and cheese and, and rolls with a. Way too much butter on them. But a benediction is simply a bestowing of a blessing. A bestowing of a blessing. And in ancient times, the Israelite priests would bestow this blessing on the people of Israel twice a day. First in the morning and then at the end of the day. And they would recite this over the people of Israel. And in our family, we incorporate this into our prayers with our kids multiple times a week, bestowing this blessing upon them. But then the second part of Scripture, or the second part of the song comes from Scripture, Exodus chapter 20. And it's really specifically 2 through 6, but I'm going to read, I'm going to start at verse 1. It says, then God gave the people all these instructions. He says, I am the Lord your God, who rescued you from the land of Egypt. We just sang that. The place of your slavery. You must not have any other God but me. And here comes a warning. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or the earth or the sea. You must not bow down and worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods? And this is the sobering part. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. You see, in Exodus, and this is going to be our theme today, there's a reminder, there's a warning, and a promise. That was the warning. But here's the promise. And this is what God says. He says, but, when God says but, pay attention, but I lavish unfailing love on a thousand generations to those who love me and obey my commands. For the math whizzes in the room, how many is a thousand generations? 30,000 years. 30,000 years. Church, I believe that this song was made for precisely a time as this. I believe it was no coincidence that this song was released just a couple weeks before COVID hit this country. And I believe that God knew, God knew that we needed a new song rooted in his eternal blessings that we find in his word. A song for churches to sing, to remember what he's doing during all of this chaos. So today... We're going to talk about fear, so we should probably pray first. (laughs) Father, you are the one true God. You are the faithful one who always keeps your promises, the one who tore apart the sea, who led us through the desert. May we cling to your promises and reject your fears, Lord. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, that we might have a relationship with you only through him and through his death and resurrection. And we love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, last week, my good friend Phil kicked us off in a new series called "These Those Were the Days. And if you missed it, I would highly encourage you to go back and read and listen to everything that he shared. But he reminded us that there is no retirement in the kingdom of God. There is no over the hill. Our impact in the kingdom does not diminish over time. That we must keep our eyes forward. That if we're looking back, wishing for the old times, we're going to miss what God is doing right now. I don't know if Phil stole this or not. If he didn't, and he came up with it. I, it was so impactful, I wrote it down in the, in the opening uh, pages of my Bible. Phil said, and this is so good, the spirit that you carry into a situation determines the lens you use for interpretation. I want to read it again because this is so good. The spirit you carry into a situation determines the lens with which you use for interpretation. When I was young, My father would tell me all the time, your attitude impacts everything. If you have a good attitude, you will have likely a good outcome. And if you have a poor attitude, you're definitely going to have a poor outcome. Your attitude, a.k.a. the spirit you carry into a situation. So quickly, before we jump into the text for today, for those that don't know, and if you've been coming for a while, you probably do, if you're new to Church 214, you might not understand that we don't have a single pastor or even just a couple. We have 14. <laughs> and we share the responsibility and the uh, opportunity to bring God's word. And as Phil shared last week, he was supposed to wrap up the series, a three-part series, and he was going to speak last, next week. But through a series of events, Phil had to move to the beginning of the series. And again, it's no coincidence God knew what needed to happen. You see, what Phil spoke on last week dovetails with what I'm going to share today so closely. In fact, I had to go back and like scratch out 30% of my message because it would have been totally redundant. But, But God knew that what Phil spoke on was going to transition into today. God works in crazy ways like that in this church. And I know that if you've been coming here for any period of time, you know that. I lead a team of people in my job. We're supposed to be a team. We have the same email address. We work for the same company. We're working on the same opportunities. We can have 20 meetings in a week. And at the end of the week, half the people will be like, what are we doing? <laughs> the teaching team, on the other hand, and Heather's going to probably bop me upside the head for this, so forgive me, Heather. I would classify the teaching team probably puts in a, A moderate amount of planning. We pray and think and talk and discuss about what God is doing in our lives. We bring that to the teaching team meeting. We meet for a couple hours. We schedule out the quarter in advance, but God brings all the details together, and that's the difference between when God's in the details and when God's not in the details. So we're going to pick back up in Exodus. So if you have your, book, your Bibles with you, go ahead and find Exodus. And we're going to spend quite a bit of time here today. The book of Exodus. If you've been in church for really any period of time, you've probably heard any number of messages preached from Exodus. There's a reason for that. The reason is, is because the book of Exodus is a timeless account A timeless story of God's faithfulness, his miracles, and his provision for his people. It's also a warning. It's also a warning to people. Hey, if you deviate from God's plan, this is what you can expect. You should have no other God than me. Exodus Chapter twenty. No other god for me. We're talking about fear today. This isn't mine. I'll give credit where credits due. A good friend of mine came up with this one day. He does. We're not. He doesn't know we're friends. One day I'll tell him, "Hey, you're my friend." Do you know what fear is? Fear is faith in the wrong god. Fear is faith in the wrong god. Fear is a liar. Fear is our enemy. Fear is Satan's attempt to cover our eyes to the goodness of God. Is it not incredible that fear has an unbelievable impact over what I call spiritual amnesia? Spiritual amnesia, you know what that is? Spiritual amnesia is when God has been faithful time and time and time again in your family, in your life, in the life of your children and friends, and yet fear comes on, and you're like, I forget all that. I forget all that. That's what the Israelites were doing in Egypt. Fear is a no-good, filthy, deceptive tool used by the author of lies, our enemy, Satan. Don't we know? That if you had a friend that lied to you, as much as fear does, it would not be your friend. Right? I mean, think about it. It's kind of silly to think about, but think about it. If you have a good friend and they lie to you one time, you're like, hey, let's not do that again. I forgive you, grace and mercy, but hey, let's be real. Let's... Have an open conversation about what lying does to relationship. But fear, on the other hand, lies every time. It's incapable of telling you the truth. And if we have fear in our lives and we're listening to it, we've invited it into our homes. We've invited it into our relationships. We've invited it into our dreams. And every time, fear is going to lie to you. It's going to whisper to you and tell you how that can't be done or how that's not going to happen, and we believe it. Regardless of the faithfulness of God leading up to that point, we're like, yeah, you're you're probably right. That probably won't happen. Fear is a burden. Fear is a burden. I want to give you this picture. Fear is like a yoke put around your neck. Phil preached last week. I love this. He was talking about... Keeping your eyes forward in what God is doing in our lives. Fear was a yoke around your neck so heavy that you can't lift your neck to see where God is going. We have to keep our eyes forward. We have to be in tune with what God is doing. I love this quote from Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill later in his life said, When I look back at all the worries in my life, all the fears... I am reminded of an old man who said on his deathbed, I had a lot of trouble in life, most of which never happened. Fear will cause you to forget everything God has done in your life. And so it is, Exodus is a story about fear. It's a story about the faithfulness of God, how fear impacted the people of Israel, and the consequences of them putting their faith in the wrong God. So what do we find? Again, if you've been in church for any period of time, you know the story of Exodus. Moses leaves Egypt. God finds him in the desert and says, hey, Moses, you got to go back and free my people. This is so good as I was preparing this this week. This really stood out to me. God tells Moses, for I have heard the cries of my people. For I've heard the cries of my people. I don't know about you, but there's been a number of times in my life where I've prayed for an outcome. And I've prayed again, and I've prayed again, and I've prayed again, sometimes for weeks, months, even years, there's probably some of you sitting here today that have been praying for decades for breakthrough in a particular situation. And I know for me, in my life, there comes a point where prayers become indiscernible from cries. Your prayers become so straught with emotion that you just can't do anything but cry. And that's what God's saying. He said, I have heard the cries of my people. The people of Israel had been in slavery for over 400 years. Don't you know that their prayers had turned into cries? But what does Scripture tell us? It says in 1 John 5.14, this is the confidence that we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he will hear our prayers. Keep praying, even if it just sounds like cries. So Moses agrees to go back. I don't know if he really had a choice, but we'll give him the benefit of the doubt. Moses agrees to go back, and he approaches Pharaoh. We know the story. Hey, Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh's like, we're good, bro. We're good. Go on and get. And Moses is like, no, no. I come with authority that you must let my people go. And again, Pharaoh says no. And so God proceeds to rain down ten supernatural plagues. Don't you know we're living with one plague right now? God rains down ten plagues, ten supernatural signs, not only to the people of Israel, but definitely to the people of Egypt. A plague of blood, a plague of frogs, a plague of gnats, a plague of flies, livestock, boils, hail, locusts. Can you imagine a plague of darkness? And finally, a plague of the death of the firstborn of those of Egypt. Can you imagine? Two things can you imagine. First, can you imagine the faith-building exercise for the people of Israel as they watch the God that they've been praying to for hundreds of years deliver blow after blow after blow? Not in some coincidental, well, that, that could have been God supernatural plagues raining down from heaven on the people of Egypt. Can you imagine the faith-building that would be going on for the people of Israel? I can only imagine Moses was like, hey, Pharaoh, I want you to meet my God. My God, Jehovah Jireh, the God who will provide. Jehovah Nisi, the Lord our banner. I made this one up, but Jehovah John Wick, I'm going to open a can on you people. (laughs) Can you imagine the people of Israel? For 400 years they've been praying, Finally, when God's showing up and just raining down total chaos, they're probably like, yes, yes. Our God is faithful. Our God is faithful. 400 years in slavery. Don't you know sometimes it takes God a long time to do something instantly, you guys? Finally, Pharaoh says, Go on and get, and the people of Israel leave. Can you imagine the stories as they're leaving Egypt? Dude, did you see that? Did you see that? I was there. Did you see that? The faith building that would have been going on. And that's the thing. God doesn't stop there in Exodus. It says that he leads his people out of Egypt by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He guided them during the day with a pillar of fire of cloud, a pillar of cloud and provided light at night with a pillar of fire. This allowed them to travel by day or night, and the Lord did not remove the pillar of cloud or fire from its place in front of the people. Like Phil spoke about last week, in front of the people, where are our eyes focused? Are we moving forward? If we're looking backwards, we're missing what God is doing. And yet, after all of this, God continues to do supernatural things. Ten plagues, clouds of pillar and fire, manna and quail from heaven, water out of rocks. And the Israelites start complaining. God, what have you done for us today? It's like my sales manager. What have you done for me today? God, we would have been happier in Egypt as slaves instead of out here with all this freedom that we don't know what to do with. They say it would have been better to be slaves. Frederick Douglass disagrees. He says, is it not better to die a free man than to live as a slave? According to the Israelites, and I would venture to say quite a few Americans, no. Moses reminds the people In chapter, excuse me, book 14, chapter 14, don't be afraid. Just stand still and watch the Lord rescue you today, just like he did all the other times, people. Every time God has shown up, stand still. The Lord himself will fight for you. This is a message that I'm speaking out of my own recent experiences. For those that know me and are close to me, you know that for two years, literally probably this week, I've been working on an opportunity, we'll call it a deal, in my life. I'm in sales, and this is a huge deal. It's the type of deal that people like myself get into sales to pursue their entire career and may never get an opportunity like it. When it first started out, I was not believing that I was capable of even winning the deal. I can remember having conversations in my head, God, why would, why would you even put this on my plate? I'm not experienced enough to win this. I don't deserve something like this. And so for about nine or ten months, that was my attitude. That was the lens that I viewed this particular opportunity. And then about 12 months ago, I had a dream, a prophetic dream. Now, that probably might make some people here feel uncomfortable. Prophetic (laughs) dreams? What's that about? And you might take issue with that, or want to come talk to me, or do the chicken you-know-what thing and send an email to Heather about it. (laughs) But here's the reality. A man with an argument has no power over a man with an experience. And I had an experience. You see, I had this dream 12 months ago where in the dream I was brought to a super tall skyscraper. And I rode the elevator up to the very top. And when I got to the top, there was someone there to meet me. And they, they brought me into a lobby and I waited. And as I was waiting in the lobby, I could hear all this chaos going on in this room next door. I didn't know how big the room was. I just could hear all these voices, very just angry voices shouting at each other in this room. And finally, this person came and said, you know, Mr. Bolt, you can come with me. And so I was kind of like, well, what's going on? And they opened these doors and there's a sea of people, hundreds and hundreds of people. And they're all bickering and arguing and yelling at each other. And kind of in the middle of this crowd, this was this huge conference room, in the middle of this crowd were three chairs in a line, and then a single chair right in front of it. And as I started to look around and things started to kind of click, I started to realize that many of the faces in this crowd were people I worked with, people on my team, people that I lead, people that are kind of adjacent to the deal that we're working on, people from the customer, And then I started to realize what they were arguing about. They were fighting and bickering about whether or not the deal should be awarded to me. So this person brings me and they say, hey, have a seat right here. And as I sit down, like I mentioned, there are three chairs there. In the middle is kind of a slightly larger chair. To the chair to the right was a smaller chair, and kind of same on the other side. And there was an older gentleman, slightly older, uh, in the middle, and then a slightly younger gentleman to his right. No one was in the third chair. And without any sort of announcement or anybody yelling or whistling, everybody in the room just stopped talking instantly. And I looked around. And right at that moment, the man to the right leaned over and whispered something to the man in the middle. I couldn't discern what it was or what he said. It was only a couple words. And then he leaned back, and the man in the middle simply looked right at me and nodded his head, yes, with approval. Now, nobody said anything, but the whole room knew at that moment that it had been decided and that I was going to be awarded this business. I woke up right after that, and don't you know, that my perspective changed for the next 12 months. In fact, things got worse in the deal. There were walls prior to that, but more walls and bigger walls, wall after wall after wall got put up, and I changed. I flipped my perspective. And now, instead of getting downcast and upset, I was like, hey, we'll get through it. The guy I work with closely, he's a believer. I said, hey. Jesus has got this, man. Objectively, there's no reason why we should win this deal. We're going to win it. And this happened for 12 more months. My wife is an incredibly patient person. But towards the end, she was getting to the point like, I can't hear any more about this. It's a roller coaster. It's up and down. I'm like, I hear you, hon. Finally, just a couple months ago, we were told, you're going to get the business And it was relief, but it was also, I was like, yeah, I know. But then, don't you know, literally hours before we were supposed to get the PO, the biggest wall yet got thrown up. And I, if I'm being totally candid and transparent with you, after 12 months of believing what God was going to do, after working on this deal for two years, after watching him break down every single freaking wall that could possibly be put up, I fumbled the ball on the one-yard line, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. I got angry. God, why would you bring me all the way to here, and rip this from my hands. What possible purpose could there be? God, I've watched you tear down every single wall that's been put in front of us for two years, but you can't deal with this one. (laughs) About 24 hours into my pity party, Heidi came and she said, hey, you need to change your attitude. And like a two-year-old, I gave the answer that probably everybody here would give. I just want to be mad. I just want to be mad. We serve the creator of the universe. He can move this wall, but he's not doing anything about it, and I'm mad about it. I can remember after she said, Hey, you need to change your attitude. I cooled down a little little bit later and I started praying. And I started justifying my reasons for being mad. God, I've been faithful. We give. We serve. We lead a church. Why would you do this? And I can very clearly remember God saying, Look at your attitude. Look at your attitude. Why would I bless someone who can't, on the one-yard line, push it into the end zone, spiritually? I came out of my office, and I just said, hey, hun, whatever happens, happens. God's in control. He's been faithful all the way up to here. I have zero reason to believe he wouldn't be faithful this time. I don't know if that speaks to anybody in here, but it's a modern-day illustration of what the Israelites were probably like. Hey, we saw God do supernatural thing after supernatural thing after supernatural thing, but hey, God, what are you going to do today? What are you going to do for us today, God? I'm going to wrap up in a few minutes. I want to spend the rest of our time in Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. For those that are familiar with the story, Jesus is going up onto the mount for the transfiguration. It's how chapter 17 starts out. He takes Peter, James, and John up with him, and the rest of the disciples get left down at the base of the mountain. And when they return, there's a crowd that's gathered, and there's a father with a son. And the father has brought the son to see Jesus because it tells us that the the young son has been afflicted with seizures since a young age. Don't you know that the father was probably overcome with both fear and faith? Satan would certainly lie to this father. Why would you take your son to see that man? He can't do anything about that. Surely you won't take your son out into public for fear that if he has a seizure, both you and him will be ridiculed. But the father trusts his faith instead of his fear. He puts his faith in the right God and not the wrong God. And he approaches Jesus and he says, Jesus, can you heal my son? And Jesus is like, almost like laughs. What do you mean, can I heal your son? Of course, bring him to me. And so the father brings the son over, and Jesus heals the young boy. Fear is a liar. Fear would tell us, hey, your son cannot be healed. Fear would tell us, hey, you're never going to get a new job or you're never going to get a job, period. Fear would tell us, hey, you're never going to come out of this battle with cancer. Fear will lie to you every single time. In Romans, it tells us, so you have not, been, you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves will make you a slave. It will put a burden around your neck. It says, instead, you have received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own. Now we call him Abba Father. When I was young, down the street, there was a a boy and a girl, brother and sister, that lived, I don't know, five or six houses down from us. And to be honest with you, they were kind of odd by I guess normal standards, whatever that means. But the point is is that the neighborhood kids would often pick on this boy and girl. And if the father ever saw it, he would come running out of the house to defend his son and his daughter. Those of us in the neighborhood, we were scared of, well, did I say those of us? The other kids in the neighborhood were scared of this father because this father would not tolerate his son and his daughter being picked on. And like the father down the street, our heavenly father will not tolerate us being picked on. Do you know that the church is what he's coming back for? Do you, we not think that he will fight for us? So many of us, myself included from time to time, are sitting in the corner just, oh my God, what, what's going to happen, God? What's going to happen? Do we not know that he is the creator of the universe? All of this is known to him. He knows what is happening. He's not scared by a virus. He's not scared by death hornets or whatever they are. What was it? Murder hornets. Murder hornets, are you serious? You get on your news feed today and every single thing is bad news. And so many of us in the church, I'm talking about the church people, So many of us in the church are sitting around, wringing our hands. What is going to happen, God? The disciples said to Jesus, why could we not heal that boy? Why could we not heal that boy? You did everything that we were doing, Jesus. Why could you heal him and we couldn't? And this is a famous passage. Many people know this. What does Jesus respond? He says, you do not have enough faith. I tell you the truth. Even if you had the faith as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, move, and it would move. Nothing is impossible. Can I be super honest with you? I've read that verse lots of times. I've seen people with the mustard seed necklace. Have you ever seen a mustard seed? Who's seen a mustard seed? It's tiny. It's tiny, tiny, tiny. And objectively, I look at it and I go, I have more faith than that. Surely I have more faith than that. And yet still, there are times when I've been praying for things to happen, for God to move, and it doesn't happen, at least not on my schedule. But can I tell you, the word there, small, it can mean two things, and it does mean two things. It means small in stature, and it also means brief. It also means brief. You might have faith. You might have a lot of faith, but it's brief. You haven't stuck it out. You haven't kept praying. You haven't kept saying, Jesus, when are you going to show up? Like the Israelites for 400 years, don't we know their prayers that turn to cries, but they have to keep praying. Your belief has to be strong and it must endure. As I close, I just want us to take a moment. I'm talking to the church here. If you're on the live stream, I'm talking to the church, the global church, but specifically to this church. Do we not understand that we know intimately the authoritative source of truth? The truth is not CNN. It's not Fox. It's not The Blaze. It's definitely not Facebook. The truth is here. Churches are being criticized for meeting because of a virus. And sometimes there's an argument like, don't you care about the people who might get sick with you meeting? (laughs) Don't we care? What does Scripture tell us? Scripture tells us to lose our life is to gain. If you know Jesus, if your elderly parents know Jesus, if your grandma knows Jesus, if your children know Jesus, what are we scared for? Why are we wringing our hands in fear? Oh, God, do you see what's happening down here? do we not care for the people that might get sick? Hey, don't you know in the early church when Christians were being arrested, when the Romans would come and everyone else would come to arrest them, they took everybody, Christian or not Christian. If you were associated with a Christian, you got swept up. And yet they knew to lose your life, is to gain. I'm not minimizing the loss of life. Just like Phil shared last week, we're not minimizing the loss of life. To lose someone you love is very tragic. But to lose somebody... While we stand up for what is right, for what we're called to stand up for, to be the church, to be the authority, to be the leader that this world needs is going to take way more than sitting at home wringing our hands going, God, do you see what's going on? It's time to stop being a bunch of wusses and stand up for what the church is supposed to do. We will not shrink back. This church will not shrink back. We will not be intimidated by man or by spirit. We will do what we are called to do, which is to tell the world about the author of truth, to tell the world about Jesus, to tell the world that they do not have to be fearful and that they, too, do not have to be a slave. This church is and will continue to take its place in a succession of generations that will not be fearful of man and will not be fearful of our enemy, Satan. We will stand up. We will speak truth. We will share the gospel unabashedly to everybody and anybody we meet. And I encourage you to come along. I encourage you to ask yourself, why am I afraid? Why am I afraid? Would you pray with me? Father, you are the author of all things good, of all things true. Because of our relationship with you, we do not need to be fearful nor slaves. Father, I pray that everyone here, myself on the top of the pile, would never forget your faithfulness. That we would not have spiritual amnesia. That we would not cheer as you break down wall after wall after wall only to reach the next obstacle, the next hurdle and completely forget your faithfulness. Lord, I pray that you would empower and a body of believers in this church, in churches all over the globe, that we will not be a group that stands back and wrings our hands in fear and in uncertainty, but that we would take our place as leaders, as cultural changers, as a group of people through your anointing, through your blood, that has authority over these things. Jesus You know what's going on. You see it all. You've seen it all. Our view is so narrow. We have forgotten the plagues and the viruses and the world wars and the depression and everything that has affected your people from the beginning of time, and you have been faithful every time. May we not forget that you will be faithful this time. It says that you will lavish your love on a thousand generations. Today in this room, there are four generations of bolts for a thousand generations. Lord, I pray for every family here that for generation after generation after generation for a thousand generations, Lord, that you will lavish your love upon them, Lord, that they will serve you and love you and never turn their back on you, that they will pursue you, keeping their eyes focused on where you are going and what you are doing. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for what you've done for us on the cross. In your name we pray. Amen.